Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. Leadsa.co.za. We like helping people who've helped themselves. So do our listeners. Entrepreneurs SA on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with FNB, the Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. I see so many SMSs from men who actually are confessing, Lolly, that they hate going to weddings. I wonder, Chris, is there a scientific explanation for this? We had a caller phoning in saying her boyfriend hates it, hates it, hates it, hates it. And I defended men saying, I, I don't know that men necessarily hate going to weddings, but the SMSs are coming in. There are more men who hate going to weddings uh, than those who love going to weddings. What's the explanation, Chris? Well, maybe they shouldn't get married so many times and it would be much cheaper for them. <laughs> I presume this is not their own wedding, of course. No. I don't know. I quite like going to weddings, actually. I find them good fun. Um, good food, good get-together, meet some new people. I always have fun when I go to a wedding. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that because they, you are in the minority. There are about four SMSs. I'm bucking the trend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, we never tire of ways to find a cure to cancer. And uh, tell us about this breakthrough that could hold the key to new ways to fight cancer. Yeah, there's a really interesting paper. It's come out from the University of Cambridge this week, actually, where I am. It's mm. by a guy called Doug Fearon, who's a, an immunologist. And it's published in the journal Science. And what this group have done is to find out at least part of the answer as to why, despite the fact that a cancer is behaving abnormally, the immune system tends to ignore it. Because even if you vaccinate someone against a cancer they've got, it's very hard to persuade the immune system to attack the cancer cells. So there's, there's got to be something which is suppressing the immune system. And what this group have found is an explanation as to what that is. They did some very elegant experiments where they put tumours into mice. And what they find is that as these tumours grow, they recruit stem cells from the mouse that the tumour is growing in. And you can show these stem cells are different to the origin of the tumour cells. And what those cells are doing, they found, is producing a chemical which is called alpha-FAP. And that stands for fibroblast activation protein. Mm -hmm. But what this chemical appears to do is to suppress the action of the immune response to the tumour. And they found that if they killed the cells, which are actually a kind of stem cell which are moving into the tumour that make this FAP, all of a sudden the tumours would stop growing. They would also reduce by over 60% the number of viable cells in the tumour. So this suggests that this FAP is in some way preventing the immune system from doing its job. They then took it a step further and found that it reduces the activity or suppresses the response to two important immune signaling chemicals. One's called TNF-alpha and the other is called gamma interferon. And both of these are important orchestrators of the immune response. So it would appear that if you have a cancer in a person, a human is almost certainly also likely to be producing this same chemical mm. and this could explain why the immune system doesn't attack their cancer and that targeting this system and blocking the signals coming out which are using this particular pathway might be a new way to make cancer remedies much more effective in future by recruiting your own immune system to help to attack the tumour. Okay, and uh, still on health and fighting diseases and illnesses, blocking brain damage at a stroke, what's that about? Well, strokes are very common, and when someone has a stroke, what's happened is that a region of the brain has become deprived of its normal blood flow. 
either because there's a bleed into that bit of the brain or the blood vessel supplying a bit of the brain has had its flow interrupted by a blockage inside the vessel. In either case, the outcome's the same. A patch of the brain doesn't receive the right amount of blood, and given that the brain has a very high metabolic rate, it very quickly begins to suffer a very profound deterioration. You will find that the brain tissue dies quite quickly. The problem is that the outcome from a stroke can be very variable, and in some people there can be permanent neurological deficit, which is quite serious. One of the things that can be done, though, is rehabilitation. But this is sometimes of less use and in some people doesn't tend to produce as good an outcome perhaps as it could because there's a researcher who's published a paper in the journal Nature this week. His name is Tom Carmichael and he's based at UCLA in America. And what he has found is that if you look in mice that are having artificially induced strokes, the area of brain tissue around the bit of the stroke, so viable tissue that hasn't been killed by the stroke but which is nonetheless next door to the bit that has, that tissue increases its activity of a brain signaling pathway called GABA. And GABA is one of the brain's main inhibitory nerve transmitters. It turns down nerve activity. So what they're finding is that the part of the brain immediately adjacent to a stroke becomes much less electrically excitable than it should be. Now, in the short term, that's really helpful because the tissue that's adjacent to an area with a stroke may be more prone to injury from the cells becoming too metabolically active or there might be, because they're partly injured, a risk of epilepsy arising from that area. So in the short term, it's good to make the cells become less active because therefore mm. their metabolic demands are lower. But in the long term, those cells could hold the key to helping to improve the functional outcome for that person because being very close to the area of the brain that's been damaged, mm. they could help to take on some of the lost functions, but they can't if they're not working properly. So what this group did was to test a chemical which can block the action of that GABA signal. It's an experimental compound called L655708. And what this compound does is to selectively block the GABA signals in those nerve cells and improve their excitability. And so they gave mice that had had artificially induced strokes doses of this chemical and then measured their motor function. And the animals that received this chemical were significantly better at the performance of various limb movement tasks and things than animals that were just left to have the normal outcome. They were just allowed to run around and do what mice normally do. And they found the best time to give the drug was three days after the stroke. So you could benefit from the inhibition close to the time of stroke when the area of the brain wants to have the lowest activity possible to help it recover and then from three days giving the drug increased the activity in this adjacent brain area again and then people or well, the mice showed much better recovery mm -hmm. and speaking of the brain chris if i had known this i wouldn't have been as miserable as i was in high school a small dose of electricity to the brain can boost mathematical ability wow it's too late for me or maybe not, because the subjects in this study, it's actually in the journal Current Biology this week, it's by Roy Cohen-Kadosh, um, he's at Oxford University. What he and his colleagues did was to recruit 15 adults, they were students, and they asked them to take part in a maths study and at the same time delivered small amounts of electricity. It's a, it's a technique called TDCS, which stands for Transcranial Direct Current Stimulation. And what you do is pass a harmless and tiny amount of electricity through the head and this includes the brain. And what they asked these subjects to do was to learn nine new numbers. Now, what I mean by that is they just invented nine arbitrary symbols, which the subjects didn't know what those symbols meant. They just were told they were numbers, and they didn't know what their numerical value was to start with. And the experiments were 
to learn how those numbers related to each other so that you could write them in order in the same way as we write one to ten the subjects had to learn these nine new numbers and, and learn how they related to each other what the subjects also did was as they were doing this learning for 20 minutes every day for six days they had this electrical stimulation to their head and in some cases the electricity was passed from the right side of the head to the left side and in other cases it was passed from the left side to the right side and what they actually found is that when they made the right side of the brain the anode the plus charge and the left side of the brain the cathode when those subjects were asked to do these tests they performed much much better than people who were the controls people who didn't receive any electrical stimulation and people who had the electricity flowing the other way actually their mathematical ability was much worse and interestingly when they retested the subjects six months later they still retained an enhanced mathematical performance compared with the people who didn't get the stimulation or had this reverse direction of stimulation and the part of the brain they were stimulating was the right parietal cortex the bit at the back of the brain on the right and this is known to be linked to mathematical ability so it would appear that passing this harmless and small amount of electricity through that brain region mm. in some way increases its aptitude for handling numbers and the researchers say that this might be helpful to people who are in the one in five uh, of the population who have severe problems when it comes to numerical ability and numbers they have a condition called dyscalculia which is the numerical equivalent of dyslexia mm-hmm. and, and and chris i mean is, is there an explanation for why some people i, I guess some for me it's not so much that one uh, is bad at maths or statistics i just see numbers and i freeze i just fall apart and i've shared the story on the radio before where my lecturer my statistics lecturer wanted to actually um uh, use hip, hip, what hypnosis to, uh, during my exam to help me to remember what I'd learned or to help me to apply what I had learned? Well, there are certainly people who have different skills for different things. And because the brain is parcellated, different parts of the brain do different jobs, um, it's probably likely that people who have skills in certain directions probably have more brain territory allocated to doing that job. And this may come at the expense of other roles or modalities and it may be that people who do not find that that they're so good at doing certain things perhaps the connections in other bits of the brain that would do those other jobs are less good so people have been looking at people with dyslexia in some detail and they found that um, people with dyslexia may have different wiring in their temporal lobes the bit of the brain adjacent to where your ear is where vision is matched to symbols and things and sounds and so there's a disconnect mm. in the way that processing happens so it could be that the same is true for maths because the right parietal lobe which does seem to be important in your mathematical ability could be just less well connected in people like you and, and actually me i'm not brilliant at mental arithmetic i have to think very hard to make sure i don't make mathematical mistakes whereas mm-hmm. other colleagues i know can look at numbers and they just see the patterns and they see the connections in the numbers and if you ask them to very quickly do sums in their head they're extremely fast wow. at seeing the, the connections other people don't do that other people have much better memory and mm-hmm. i tend to to work much better from a memory yes. point of view and and uh, being able to see lots of facts in front of my eyes and connect them together and link them I can't do the same with numbers. It's interesting, isn't it? It is absolutely fascinating. All right, folks, we're taking your calls on 021-446-0567, and your SMSs as well on 31702 and 31567. Let's go straight to the lines and Patrick in Edgemead. Good morning. Hi, good morning, Rudy. Good I morning. just know from Chris, I've got a Yorkshire accent and I've got a friend who lives maybe 
you know, 100 kilometres from where I come from in the UK, and he's got a totally different accent. I just wondered if it was to do with location, or is it something else in where you've been brought up that gives you the accent that you've got? Hey, up, Patrick. How you doing? I'm fine with yourself, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I'm very well, thank you. I, as you can tell, I have a southern softy accent. Yeah, I, um, I can't, I, I can't drink the kind of strong tea that you guys up up north like. Um, the the thing about accents is that it's all to do with the fact that we're a social species and we learn by copying others, and by copying others we fit in. And in the old days, when communities tended to be very isolated, they weren't very mobile, trains hadn't been invented, cars hadn't been invented, and therefore the sphere of influence of a community was quite small and restricted. People hung around in their groups. And because of that isolation and that community cohesion, people developed unique ways of speaking, they developed unique dialects, certain words that were used only in those communities. And as a result, they became quite refined. And you see this at local level in places like the UK, but you see it at country level. When you go to Australia, you will see a whole country speaking with a so totally different accent, despite the fact that many of those people who populate Australia actually came from England, because hmm. they're all the convicts, and we chucked them over there. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, in the nicest Chris. possible way. <laughs> it's quite funny. I went to Australia recently, and I was queuing up at customs, and uh, and this woman sort of just about stamped my passport, and she said, "Have you got a criminal record?" And I sort of looked at her and said, "Well, I didn't think that was still necessary," um, and she gave me such a <laughs> filthy look. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, but the, but the but bottom line is that accents are down to the way we copy each other, and it's it's a behavioural thing, and it's a learned experience. And you're most plastic. Your learning is most acute when you're little. So the area you tend to be brought up in, when you're learning from your parents and your friends and your peer group around you, those are the memories that are most strongly laid down, and therefore that behaviour becomes entrenched and becomes your lifelong accent. And you can change it a bit as you get older, but you find that the adults are harder to teach new tricks to, that'd be like an, an old dog can't learn new tricks, than young kids who adapt to new accents very, very quickly. Thank you very much, Patrick, for the question. Do me and Rosalind, hi. Your line is very bad. Welcome. Uh, welcome. Hi. Hi, Reedy. Hi, Chris. Yeah. Um, I'm in recycling. Um, what I want to find out, is it possible to magnetize a non-metallic item, specifically glass, because it's got a set a structure, and I recycle glass, but there's a lot of broken glass that I can't pick up. Is there a way to magnetize that? Hey, Jimmy. Um, things that are magnetic are ferromagnetic materials. And what makes an item magnetic, if we look at iron, for example, is the way its electrons spin. So if you were to zoom in with a very powerful microscope on a piece of iron, you will find that the electrons in the iron are spinning in a certain direction. And this spin creates a magnetic field and, it, and a field around those moving electrons which is capable of engaging the uh, materials which are also electrons that have a spin that is uh, capable of being recruited in this way. And so therefore only a restricted number of materials can be magnetic or magnetized. That said, things that have electron configurations that are correct, that, that can be made to spin a certain way, can also display paramagnetic behavior. In other words, things which you wouldn't be able to pick up with a magnet can nonetheless respond to a magnet under certain con certain circumstances. And in fact, liquid oxygen, um, if you make some liquid oxygen by cooling down oxygen to about minus 210 degrees or so, then you can actually pour the liquid oxygen across the poles of a magnet and, and it will bend, the stream of oxygen will bend because it's attracted to the magnet. So the answer is that some things are paramagnetic and haemoglobin in your body, when you deoxygenate it, 
that also is paramagnetic to a certain extent. You need a very powerful magnet to see the effect, but it will respond to a magnetic field. Um, but there are only restricted things that you can do this to, and therefore I don't believe that glass can be made magnetic, and therefore I think you'll have to find another way of picking up your glass, I'm afraid. Let's go to Joshua in Centurion. Hi. Hi, morning. Um, I, I, I've just uh, I've got the, the, this curiosity question. I just wanted to understand from an evolutionary perspective, if we come from water, what was the driver or the need from an environmental perspective for the male and the female, and how did they come about if we actually come from one cell, if I'm making the wrong assumption? Oh, that's an excellent question. And the evidence that sex is important, in other words, having a male and a female, is just look at the world around us. It doesn't matter what creature you are, whether you are a human, whether you are an animal or a plant even, you have males and females, and this is, enables the process of sex to take place, and this means that you end up with more evolutionary success. And that must be the case, because the world is dominated by people, plants, animals, whatever, having sex. So when we're actually having sex, apart from all the fun stuff, the other thing that's going on is an important card-shuffling task at a genetic level. Because when you make gametes, which are, in the case of a man, sperm, and in the case of a woman, a woman eggs, what you're doing is shuffling your genes and producing a unique... Con contribution of your genetic stock which is mixed with a unique contribution from the other person and that produces a, a genetic complement that is unique and no two sperm have the same match makeup of DNA and no two eggs have the same makeup of DNA and therefore when you bring them together the progeny have a totally different makeup of DNA which means you can then have genetic diversity because the thing that makes an organism successful in the world is its genetic diversity because environments change and in order to be successful in those environments you need a big combination of genes which enables you to be able to fight off various pathogens exploit different environments and therefore have the ability to change or evolve which is basically the process of selecting out certain genes that suit a certain environment so to take an african example if you look at people who live in equatorial africa they have very very dark skins because there's a lot of sunlight and if they didn't have very very dark skins then their folate folic acid in their body would be depleted and this would produce a risk of neural tube defects when they try to have babies but when you come up to europe where there's much less sunlight having very dark skin blocks out lots of sunlight through the skin and you can't make enough vitamin d because you make vitamin d in your skin and therefore it's beneficial in lower sunlight conditions to have lighter skin in order to make enough vitamin d and that will be the process of genetic shuffling which has slowly enabled people to evolve that way over thousands if not millions of years mm. so in other words the reason that we've had men and women and in all different species males and females where it's necessary to do that is because it enables you to have genetic recombination and therefore create more genetic diversity and that's the big driver Speaking of that, uh, males and females, as an SMS here, it says, how is it that dogs' genitals lock during sex and they battle to untangle? Is this known to happen to humans too? Uh, I have found, I think, one case report. Um, someone was telling me that they had a, a couple who did get a bit excitable and they 
uh, ended up in an ambulance having to go to hospital and it took them a little while, about half an hour, to get them apart. So I think it can happen because sometimes the muscles in the woman can go into a kind of spasm and that spasm can make the muscles contract very, very tightly which makes it quite difficult for the man to disengage and because the man's bits are being squeezed by the woman's bits, the blood that's going into the man's bits can't get out so the man's bits get actually bigger and this exaggerates the problem and makes them lock together even more tightly. So it can happen in people because I've seen cases of, of um, pe people have told me about cases of this happening. Uh, in animals, this definitely happens and foxes do the same thing as well. And obviously in the animal world, the benefit of this happening is it makes sure that enough sperm goes across to guarantee a pregnancy. Uh, or to make the chances of a pregnancy fathered by that particular individual mm. as high as possible. So it can happen in animals, and I think it can happen rarely, thankfully, in humans. It's so strange, Chris. You've answered so many questions, and my team, they looked very disinterested, but on this one, they all started paying attention. They all prick you up their ears, did they? <laughs> Are you so naughty? I'll chat to you next week. All right, thanks for having me, Rudy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jeez, I love that. The doctor, the scientist with the sense of humor is very naughty. And that comment about the Australians, I mean, given the history uh, of that country and how it came about, imagine that in the 21st century, you get to the airport and you ask, do you have a criminal record? I didn't think that was still necessary. That was funny. My favorite SMS. Um, okay, now it's disappeared. I'll find it. I'll find it. I'll find it. It says, Reedy, Chris wasn't joking. Australia was colonized largely by convicts sent from the UK. No, you're joking. <laughs> it says, read up on it. Very interesting piece of history. <laughs> in fact, the one person who writes about this in a very entertaining way, I mean, it's, it's, it's a modern book, if you consider. It's not an account of history, but it's just a story. It's fiction, but based on that. Uh, Bryce Courtney's The Potato Factory. The Potato Factory, it's got a, a family of, 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 of criminals from the UK shipped off to Australia. And it's a long, long account on of what happens and how they get there. And uh, one of the interesting things about history is that you can just use fiction uh, to educate and entertain people. He does a great job of it, Bryce Courtney, The Potato Factory. That's what the book is called. Uh, lots of SMSs about um, the, the, the weddings and guys. I didn't realize Lolly was starting something. I really didn't. If you want to hear more of these SMSs and emails, that have come in uh, do listen just after 10 o'clock I'll go through them but right now oh, these SMSs about genitals locking are disturbing me you guys are so predictable <laughs>